Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with Gulliver's Travels himself, Nate the Great Piper. Am I a giant or something? <laughs> you just been all over the place. Oh, but does Gulliver really actually travel that much, or doesn't he just get washed up on shore with a bunch of like people like a thousand times smaller than he is? Isn't yeah, that that's the story? A I, I I don't know that he's necessarily a giant, right? He just finds this 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 land of little people. I don't know. It's I'll a take weird... it. What's up? <laughs> it's good to have you back, Nate. It's, it's good, good to, to be, be here. back. It's good to be back. I have been gone, but I have returned. The prodigal son has come home. The prodigal son has returned, and boy, are we happy to have you. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it goes a little smoother now that you're back. How did it go last week? Hey, you know. I don't know. We'll we'll leave that up to, to the listeners to decide. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Let me know. Just just like a title it to Nate and then you can tell me if Jason was good or not. Just just tell him. Hi at weeklydeepdive.com. Just tell him how crappy it is and how happy we have uh we we are to have Nate back. All right. All right. What are we talking about today, buddy? All right. This week we're diving into Doctrine and Covenants 67 through 70, and a lot of this deals with the publication of Doctrine and Covenants. So they're they're getting ready to publish Doctrine and Covenants, and before they do, there's there's hesitation among some of the apostles, some of the elders. They're saying, you know what, this um maybe we don't this this might not be our best work. Maybe we don't want to publish this. They they didn't think that Joseph Smith's revelations were were super fantastic. And and he addresses this in Doctrine and Covenant 67 in the Revelation, the Lord says, verse 5, Your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr., and his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. And you have sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language. This you also know. So the idea here is, they're hesitant to publish the Book of Commandments because they don't think Joseph is very articulate and that his revelations are very articulate. And the Lord kind of reveals revelations based on our understanding, our capacity, and our language. So before we dive too much further down that road, though, I want to do a little bit of a sketch on William, uh, William E. McClellan because he, he plays kind of a significant role in this part. He's one of the original 12 apostles at this time, very articulate, and and he's actually influenced the church even today, oddly enough, because he he left the church uh, very vocal against the church. And in fact, so we talked about him last week while you were gone, Nate. He's, He's one that he kept journals very, very well. He documented everything. He was a teacher. He had very great penmanship, and he wrote down all of this uh, with the church, without the church. So he gives us a pretty interesting glimpse into into early church history. But we, we talked about how he was convinced Joseph Smith was a prophet last week because he had five questions that he wanted the Lord to answer for him. And then he came to Joseph Smith and said, I would like to know the Lord's will concerning me. And in the Revelation, Doctrine and Covenants 66, the Lord answered all five questions that he hadn't even revealed to Joseph Smith. So he had a pretty solid testimony of Joseph Smith. But when he left the church in 1838, Joseph Smith kind of... Um, boy, this is going to be my next tuberculosis here. Villainified? Villified? Villified? (laughs) Made him look a little bit villainous? Vilified. He vilified McClellan in in, in some of the writings there, and it rubbed him the wrong way. So when Joseph Smith got arrested, the story goes, when Joseph Smith was in, in prison, McClellan went to the guard and asked permission from the guard to beat the prisoner, if he could beat Joseph Smith. So the guard went to Joseph Smith and told him the request, and Joseph Smith said, I'm fine with it if you take the irons off me. Let's let's do it. And so the guard went back to McClellan and said, you can do it if I can take the irons off. And he said, I'll do it if you give me a club. And so he went back to Joseph Smith and said, hey, you know, he said he'll do it if, if I give him a club. And Joseph Smith said, I'm down with it. And the guard's like, no, no, we're, we're not going to go this far. 
And so McClellan went back, and, and the story goes that he he robbed Joseph Smith, uh, went to his house, took took some of his stuff, went through his stables and whatnot. But they kind of had a falling away, a, a falling apart. But this is long before the falling apart happened. But because he had such a big falling apart and was very anti, uh, was very vocal about his sentiments, uh, there was this idea that there was something in his writings that would be very embarrassing for the church. Uh, he had a journal, and, and in his writings, he referenced this book that he was keeping, this journal. And I, and I think he was actually trying to publish this book, but nobody knew where it was. It, it, it wasn't in the common knowledge, but they knew it existed. And because they knew it existed, and because they knew that he had such a, a strong falling out and harsh opinions with the church, this is where Mark Hoffman comes into play. Mark Hoffman makes up this story that he has the journal of McClellan, this notebook that everybody's looking for, this missing notebook. And the, the, Hoffman eventually goes to prison for killing two people with pipe bombs. And the reason why he's killing people with the pipe bombs is to keep it secret and hidden that he really doesn't have the papers, that he it, it doesn't exist. It's all just this ploy, this made-up thing that he's trying to get some money from. So it's interesting that McClellan plays this role even down into today in, in our history right now. He's an interesting character. But they did find this journal, I want to say 2009. I could be wrong on the dates, but somebody did come forward with the journal, and and a collector bought it. It might be in the, in the church hands but going to this journal, you would think it would be very negative, but there's some interesting things here I wanted to kind of pull out while we had the opportunity to talk about this McClellan, give you an idea of his character and why this is going to be significant with questioning Doctrine and Covenants and whether or not it should be published. So, in the notebook, first off, it's described um, as being filled from binding the page edges with fine and clear handwriting of a teacher of penmanship. So he, he was a very good writer. Um, although he was critical of the church, there's a few things that he said um, in in here. This is why I said it looks like he was trying to make this notebook uh, an actual book because he addresses the readers rather than just making an entry in the journal. And he asks them, how would you know if the three witnesses are telling the truth or lying? And then he relates the story that kind of convinced him to try to say, this is how I know that they were telling the truth. He says, and I'll just quote from the, the journal at this point, I said to them, uh, well, first off, he, he runs into Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer who are in danger from a mob that's chasing him. And as he comes in contact with them, he says, um, I said to them, brethren, I have never seen an open vision in my life, but you men say you have. And therefore, you positively know. Now, you know that our lives are in danger every hour. If the mob can only catch us, tell me, in the fear of God, is the Book of Mormon true? Cowdery looked at me with solemnity, uh, depicted in his face, and said, Brother William, God sent his holy angel to declare the truth of the translation to us. And therefore, we know. And though the mob kill us, yet we must die declaring its truth. And then David said, Oliver has told you the solemn truth, for we could not be deceived. I most truly declare to you its truth. And then he says, said I, boys, I believe you. I can see no object for you to tell me falsehood now when our lives are endangered. So for him, even as even at this point where he's very anti-vocal, or well, I can't say anti-vocal, he's very vocal about being anti-the church, yet he says, for this reason I was convinced and remain convinced even though he had hard feelings, even though he had a falling out, it's interesting to see his perspective. This notebook that that Hoffman kind of toked up to be very against the church ended up, um, yeah, it had some interesting flavor and some interesting takes against it, but still it had some very interesting points of view and explanation for why he still believed even being on the other side of the church. So it, it was interesting. But I, and I don't want to go down this too long, um, but McClellan, did he taught high school in 1834. Joseph Smith was one of his students, so Joseph Smith is a little bit older here, 1834, right? Trying to learn and, and make up for missed education. And I love the way McClellan describes Joseph Smith as a student. He says, um, I learned the strength of his mind as to the study and principle of science. 
and hearsay that he had one of the strongest and well-balanced, penetrating and retentive minds of any man with whom I have formed an acquaintance. I, I just love that description of Joseph Smith coming from McClellan. And McClellan is very articulate. One of the historians talking about this journal says, I don't think we've had too many individuals who write about the LDS Church from a former member standpoint that write so articulately. His grammar and his way of expressing himself in his journal is rather remarkable for its time. So, here's where that comes into play. He is one of the ones who's looking at the Book of Doctrine and Covenants. Now, think of him as a teacher a teacher of penmanship, a teacher of grammar, a high school teacher, and looking at this uneducated boy, this is 1831, this is even three years before he goes to attempt to educate Joseph Smith, and he's kind of wincing at the revelations, saying, maybe maybe we shouldn't lead with that. If we want to bring people to the church, maybe this isn't our best foot forward. Maybe we, we should clean these revelations up or, or have somebody else kind of receive these revelations and put this out to the world. So that's what the Lord's talking about. And the Lord lays down a challenge. This is one of the coolest things. 67, he says, um, this is the Lord now in verse six. Now seek ye out the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. So in other words, find the crappiest revelation you can in this book of commandments, what you think is the shoddiest written, and now appoint one of you that's the best, the most articulate, the, the, the greatest penmanship, the, the learned, educated person. And of course, this is going to be McClellan, right? And he says, or if there be any among you that shall be uh, that shall make one like unto it, then you are justified in saying that you do not know that they are true. But if you cannot make one unto it, you are under condemnation if you do not bear record that they are true. So there's the Lord. Okay, if you're hesitant about publishing these, if you're embarrassed with my word, and you're not sure if they're true or not, then I have a challenge for you. And it's not the pray about it challenge that we read Moroni's Promise 3 through 5, right? It's not just pray about it and see if it's true. It's okay, recreate it, write your own revelation, then you'll know if it's true or not. It's kind of an interesting way of doing it, right? Could you imagine if missionaries are going out there and like, hey, if you're not sure the Book of Mormon's true, go out and write your own Book of Mormon, and then I'm pretty sure you'll be convinced one way or the other. So... Describing how this went, um, this, is how, this is what it says. William E. McClellan accepted the offer and in the spirit of presumption undertook to imitate the, revelation, the revelations of the Lord. His effort to produce a revelation was witnessed with great interest by the elders, and when, um, when they became aware of his complete failure, all doubt concerning the revelations of God vanished, and they signed their willingness to testify to the truth, and the, and the, the book was published. One way to solve that, I guess. <laughs> that's, that disagreement. That's it's interesting. And and Doctrine and Covenants, we've seen some interesting things here. We look at it and and we've pointed out metonymy or or these Janus parallels or things that clearly identify that the Lord is the one addressing it. But at the same time, what they saw was this weakness or how Joseph Smith was speaking. And and the Lord speaks to us according to our understanding, our levels. And I think we've had this conversation before as we've talked about the words the Lord uses or how he communicates with us. Maybe it's not a hundred percent, maybe it's not, but it's what we understand to get us to where we need to be. And maybe there's some different levels to that. So in talking about how the Lord speaks to our understanding, I just wanted to bring maybe one example of that, if that's all right. Talking about the name of Lucifer and where that came from, and I and I don't know if we've covered that in this podcast. I don't I don't think we've talked about it. But the name Lucifer, it's a it's a a name that really doesn't quite exist, at least the way we think it does. It shows up once in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter fourteen, and it's a it's a mistranslation. So in the Hebrew it says it, it, so in the in the English it says Lucifer, how art thou fallen, thou son of the morning, right? And he's talking about how he's falling down to the pits and he wanted to make his throne higher and ascend up into the heavens, but now he's just this this fallen, disgraced person. But in there, the Hebrew says, Halel ben Shachar. And ben means son of, Shachar means morning, so the morning star. Halel is 
is a proper noun, but it comes from a verb, hallelujah, hallelujah, means praise Jehovah. So the verb means to praise Jehovah, but Isaiah is taking a verb and making it into a proper noun. And, and so the translators weren't quite sure how to translate that. I mean, you could translate it as, if it means praise, maybe it means proud, boastful one, arrogant. Oh, arrogant, proud, the, the, the one who praises himself, if you will, in this noun form, son of, son of the morning. But because they weren't sure how to translate it, they looked at son of the morning, and you think, oh, morning star. They're talking about Venus, the, the light bearer. So the Greek translators took Hallel, and they translated it as, as this phosphoros, or light bearer. And phosphoros, from Greek to Latin, Phos is light, like phosphorus, right? And loose is light in, in, the, in the Latin. So loose and feros, bear, Lucifer, becomes this Latin translation from the Greek, from the Hebrew. So, so the word Lucifer is born out of something that, that never even had that context or meaning to begin with. And now today, you say Lucifer, and instantly we know or at least we're all on the same page about who we're talking about or what this refers to. Even though in the Latin New Testament, Lucifer is actually used as a reference to a title of Christ, as Christ is the day dawn, the morning star, the one that brings light into our hearts. And it's used, Lucifer in the Latin New Testament, you see it as, as a title of Christ, which, which is just kind of weird and mind-blowing, right? But today, when the Lord speaks to us, it wouldn't make if if he had to sit down and explain every little thing and tell us well you're wrong here then then the, the meaning's missed right he he wants to say something and communicate he communicates to our level to our understanding whether the symbol is entirely accurate or that's the symbol that's going to convey exactly what we understand and i think that's what was going on here in doctrine and covenants the lord was speaking through joseph smith in a way familiar with joseph smith and these revelations are flavored joseph smith because of that so i think it's interesting how the lord speaks to us today love it all right next up verse 10 uh, one of my favorite verses of all of doctrine and covenants and again verily i say unto you that it is your privilege and a promise, so not just your privilege, but this is a promise from the Lord, I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for you are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am. This is one of the greatest promises ever. This is your privilege and a promise I give to you that if you do these things, the veil will be rent, and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither the natural, but with the spiritual. For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh except quickened by the Spirit of God. I don't care how I see God, whether it's a vision or, or he's, I don't know, it's just, that would be an amazing experience to have. So I Or scary. <laughs> I guess it depends on what you were doing that at the I'm time saying, at the time he shows up. I'm saying. For me it'd be scary. But I'm trying <laughs> to make it so that I live better so that it won't be scary. If or that it wouldn't be scary, Jason. <laughs> well, maybe that's why he says he'd hold off until until we're ready, right? This yeah. this idea. If you strip yourselves from your jealousies fear. and fear. There you go. And fears. The fear part of it's that's the one for me. Well, and it goes back to Chronicles of Narnia, right? You read the, the old Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe? I definitely watched both the cartoon version from the 70s that had the just creepiest animation <laughs> and the live-action one from the 80s, maybe early 90s. Oh, they've even done a third one now. I know, they did the other ones, that, but those ones, that was too CGI, man. Like, it, get out know, of here with that stuff. it's too bad. It seemed like they were going somewhere, and it just didn't... It, it oh, didn't. no, they did not They did not stick the dismount, as they say. <laughs> no, no, they did not land That old cartoon one's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> dude, when they're, when they're marching Aslan up to the, to the, the altar, altar, oh, my gosh. And you dude, got every like, little... Those goon creepy, out there. yeah, the creepy goons out there running around, celebrating, and, stuff, and, and shave him, and the girls are back there watching it, and they're freaking out, but they have to be quiet. It was terrifying. It, dude, seventies movies. I know this is kind of a detour, but dude, seventies movies. The art is so like a signature thing from that era, and it's really amazing, and the music from it's amazing, but like it doesn't age 
I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not that it doesn't age well, but I mean, it definitely has like a very 70s thing Feel to it. Feel to it. Did you ever watch The Hobbit? Yeah. Like the old cartoon? Uh-huh. Super dope. But again, if you go back and, and look at the animation of that, you're like, oh, yeah, this was very much a thing. And the music is- The music was incredible. It's gorgeous. And it's super, but it's kind of like dark Ballads. and creepy and- Whatever you know, what I mean, like there's there's a there's a there's kind of a cool dark overtone to it that's very somber. I guess maybe not dark, but like a, for a very heavy thing to it. But anyways, but it kind of spills over into that, the Jim Henson era, right? You got those original sure, but that well, was some scary stuff. Yeah, the Jim Henson stuff, like the early stuff, was scary. But you you want to know what I actually? Um, you know, want to know what it spilled over to that I'm kind of catching back up again is the Don Bluth, like or Bluth. Don Bluth, yeah, Don Bluth movies like Land Before Time, um, The Secret of Nim, um, mm-hmm. All Dogs Go to Heaven. You know what I mean? It's like it actually it's funny because I feel like it morphed more into that, which also I can't believe parents in the 80s were letting their kids watch those movies. Those movies are <laughs> terrifying as well. But anyways, we digress. So, yes, I have seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, have, I, I do know of what's going on with the – with the Chronicles of Narnia, as they say. I just remember, because Aslan was obviously a symbol for Christ, Christ yeah. right? And, and I remember how they described being in the presence of Aslan, because some people, it, they, they just loved that. The the idea excited them. They, they wanted to be there. They thrived off that. And then for other people, it made them want to shrink, hide, or or kind of run away. And, and the way they portray it or explain it, describe it, I don't know. That's what you reminded me of as you were talking about that. This idea of fears. We overcome that fears. We, as we prepare ourselves, as we become humble, to where it would be a joyous occasion. We we look forward to it. I think that's what the Lord's waiting for to be able to to have that veil removed and to be able to enjoy His presence. And it isn't a it it is an incredible experience. Sweet. All right. I'm going to switch over to Doctrine and Covenant 68. 68 covers a couple of interesting promises. Really, really cool. In verse 3 it says, And this is the ensample unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture. Mm. Shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. But this is the promise of the Lord unto you, O ye my servants. Wherefore, be of good cheer and do not fear, for I am the Lord, or excuse me, for I the Lord am with you and will stand by you. And and I think that conclusion is what makes that promise work, right? I am the Lord and I am with you and will stand by you. When I see, when he says stand by you, I think what he's saying here is I will stand by what you say right i will sustain you I'll exactly or, or, yeah i will yeah. not a word shall validate, fall to the floor without is. being fulfilled yep i like it mm-hmm. and oh, yeah it's a it's, it's a good thought it's interesting because that's that's where a lot of though i feel like that's where a lot of controversy sometimes can kind of creep in though right like when is something being spoken as a prophet or prophetically versus when is it just being, you know, not pontificated, but, you know, like, when is it just being How do they know when through? they're moved upon by the Spirit yeah. or you're just speaking? Like like Joseph Smith, right, when when I said, I, when the, pro, she said, what was he, he's studying German and the couple from Wisconsin visited him and, and he's like, a prophet is only a prophet when speaking as a prophet. So that's a good question. How do you know when a prophet is, like you said, pontificating? Because Joseph Smith says, you know, this makes good sense to me and explains it like this in a very logical, reasonable way. But it's Joseph Smith. Is he is he giving us a revelation or is he just explaining what makes sense in his mind? Sure. And and I think we almost have to to rely on the Spirit ourselves to be able to understand that to to, to some level. And and that well, sounds like think, a cop sorry, out. I also think that it's that it's on purpose though, and it's healthy for us too have to kind of talk through and reason through things and think through things on our own, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I can only imagine, I mean, how much more do you learn or take away from a lesson when you've had the chance to, on your own, sometimes thinking out loud, really comb through something and talk through it and like parse it out a little bit and 
throw a theory out there and then test that theory and you know so it's i i get i think i think it's fully understandable how that can be something that could hang up a lot of people right when you go and hear you know some of the things Brigham Young would say about you know Martians or whatever you know what I mean like all all of the fun stuff right all of the stuff that you know we just get pelted with on a daily basis on a mission right and then you go okay think though of how many times like even you and I will like look at something and we'll throw out some ideas on it and again like I I totally feel inspired while you and I are chatting about these things whether or not whether or not we're even you know obviously we're not prophesying or anything but you know what I mean I'm saying yeah. it's like it's it's there's something so healthy about out loud going here's here's a concept and and could it mean this and could it mean this and it and maybe it means this and it would be it's interesting to think of it like this you know and but so much of that can then be taken like oh oh that's just that's just false prophecy and you're just like whoa 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 like you can have the spirit and maybe the spirit isn't even giving you the answers right it's just going like keep going keep going keep following that keep following that lane of thought or whatever right and i just Again, I, I, I think that I've over the years at least started being a lot less critical of the some of the crazy things that you know Brigham Young specifically said or whoever said, right? Because you just go, okay, I understand that it's human nature to be in a lane trying to like think through something and saying things that are later like, no, 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 that's not right. But keep going, you know. But keep trying to figure this out. And also, like, what if you feel like you're motivated, inspired by the Spirit to say something, and you start, but then you kind of get carried away in the yes. moment, and you start running your mouth on things that, you know, you've got a little bit Which of Which is more likely what we, what we probably with. do. Back to our example of you and I. I'm sure, I'm sure we always probably start in a healthy place, and then, and then we just start running our mouths, so, yeah. But from a, from a prophet standpoint, as I look uh, particularly at the Old Testament, and I look at the prophets speak, when they're speaking in the name of the Lord— they, they make it clear when they say, thus saith the Lord. Sure. Or when we look at here, like these revelations, I am Alpha and Omega. If, if they're putting, and maybe this goes back to that episode we did where we we're talking about speaking in the Lord's name and being authorized to speak in the Lord's name. And when you're not authorized, are you taking it in vain? And be careful about what we're speaking in the name of Jesus Christ, because are we authorized to be saying that for him, or is that... Is that what the scripture, when they're moved upon and say, thus saith the Lord, okay, that repent, makes sense. right? Yeah, I like that. If it's prefaced with that, with that introduction, this isn't me anymore. This is the Lord. Good, thought, good thoughts. Good question. I like it. So going to uh, a little bit further here in Doctrine and Covenant 68, it's the idea that people that are descendants of Aaron, literal descendants of Aaron, have a legal right to preside over the Aaronic priesthood. And we know today that in Israel, a lot of times if you have the last name Cohen, Cohen means priest in, in Hebrew, and they preserve that line, they preserve that heritage, and they would try to keep it in some sense or another. There are people that do claim to be descendants of Aaron. Why, why are they not called to lead the church as far as the Aaronic priesthood? Why do we still have a general bishopric in the in the church that is set apart by the first presidency? And would there be a difference, or would we ever see a shift to the Aaronic priesthood being run by literal descendants of Aaron outside of where we're at today? And, and I've heard some people bring this up and say, well, the, the, the sacrifices that they're offering in Israel, do those count for anything? Or if an, a priest over there does it, is he, is he officiating in the priesthood because he does have that birthright? Mm. And I think these verses offer a little bit of clarification to that because they say, um, let's see, let's, let's dive into this a little bit. Um, verse 14, the t- the, the, there remain hereafter in the due time of the Lord other bishops to be set apart of the church to minister even according to the first, who uh, wherefore they shall be high priests who are worthy, for they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood, except they be literal descendants of Aaron. So that, that part right there, I think, makes people question a little bit. Wait, except they be literal descendants, then then they're good, right? They don't have to have that. 
But verse 16, I think, is uh, offers some clarity. And if they be literal descendants of Aaron, they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are the firstborn among the sons of Aaron. For the firstborn holds the right of the priesthood over this priesthood and the keys and the authority of the same. But then it says, no man has a legal right to this office to hold the keys of this priesthood, except he be a literal descendant and the firstborn of Aaron. But as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found, provided he is called and set and ordained under the power under the hands of the first presidency of the Melchizedek priesthood. But here's where the clarity, I think, comes. And a literal descendant of Aaron also must be designated by this presidency and found worthy and anointed and ordained under the hands of this presidency. So then why even why even why even have all that other stuff? Yeah. Otherwise they're not legally authorized to officiate in their priesthood. I was gonna say my dad's name is Aaron and I am the oldest. <laughs> there there you go. You're a descendant of Aaron. And, and the I'm first the oldest. Born. I'm the firstborn. How about that? Yeah, and I think there's a story of somebody that did come up to a bishop at one point and said, hey, I, I, I need to be called into the presiding bishop because I am a descendant of Aaron. I am a firstborn. I have all of this, and that's my right. And you say, okay, even if you are, even if what you say is true and you can prove it, you still have to be set apart by the first presidency. That's still a decision over those who are running the church. For real, though, why even have that in there? I don't know. It's kind of an interesting little deal. I think it is. When the Lord confers the priesthood to Aaron, and and go back, it's not that all of a sudden Aaron has this priesthood forever. It's because Moses lays his hand and confers that. It's still Moses presiding over the Melchizedek priesthood that is giving him this. But they say, this shall be to your seed forever. And so this idea that the Lord remembers his promise, even way back thousands of years in the Old Testament, it it's still there. He's still holding true. And I it's a good question. Why do they even have that? I think I think it's significant in the same sense that Abraham's promise is still significant to us today. This idea that we are descendants of Abraham and the Lord will bless us with the blessings of Abraham and, and this idea of Ephraim and the blessings that are associated with him, that these covenants are long standing and that God does not forget. Although we might forget, he will not forget. And he will still he will still hold that right out. He will still remember his people no matter what. And there might come a point in time where we see that. But if it does happen, it will happen under the direction of those who preside over his church and hold all those keys to make it happen. It's not just going to be some rogue group of priests that all of a sudden have the priesthood. They have the legal right. They can be born to it but they still have to officiate under the direction of the first presidency. Cool. Like it. Okay. Next up, as we're getting close to wrapping this up, um, it talks about the responsibility of parents to educate their kids. Oh, here we go. You love this. Do, do I? Dude, you're, you're the education man. You're the education. You're, I'm like the go live your life man, and you're like the go get smart man. It says... Uh, for this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized. And their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old, and receive the laying on of hands. And they shall teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. And the inhabitants of Zion shall observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Um, and it says, let's see. And again, verse 25, and again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of mistakes which are organized that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands when eight years old, the sin be upon the head of the parents, for this shall be the law. So, kids, they, they, they kind of get a free pass for, for, for up until eight, but it's not, it's not entirely a free pass, right? I, I mean, whatever they do becomes the responsibility of the parents. If your kid goes out and does something terrible when he's five, six, whatever, it's it's because the parent wasn't keeping an eye on him or, or, or watching him or teaching him or doing what they could to, to educate him. And, and it, you know, it makes sense. You're trying to make sure the kids get some some wings under their 
some air under their wings, uh, make sure they understand things before they're held personally accountable, give us a chance to kind of figure things out. But is is eight too young? Should we be waiting till kids have full responsibility till they turn 16, 18, 21? I mean, what what age do kids need to start being accountable for their own decisions and are parents off the hook? Is there is 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 eight too early or is eight too late? Because in some churches you're baptizing the day they're born because you don't want them to to go without a, being baptized and dying. What are your thoughts, Nate? Eight works. <laughs> eight works. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like clearly, I clearly infants don't work because they what? don't know. Because I mean, it defeats the whole purpose of being baptized. I definitely have children that are under the age of eight that are very aware of the um, knucklehead moves that they're pulling all the time and how they're just like punking each other all the time. But then I also have a nine-year-old or almost nine-year-old who also is still just learning how to act. So you know what I mean? Like I think that I think that eight works. I think I think and not right. only that too, but like I think that uh, I also think that as a parent who I'm sure. I mean, I know I blow it all the time. I also think that at a certain point, like, yeah, if you're out there, if you're out there doing your best, I think that whatever, you know what I mean, that what happens happens and that God will be understanding. Yeah. And I look at, I I think, I think if eight and baptism, we almost put the wrong emphasis on this idea of accountability and in that baptism wipes away all your sins. You're pure, you're free, you're clean. And, and now, like, it's all on you to follow this line and be perfect. And they're like, well, wait a second. Why can't I wait to make that choice until I fully understand everything, until I fully understand all things that I'm doing and I perfectly understand this relationship and I've figured out and I'm turning away from all my knuckleheadness, as you yeah. put it, right? Why can't I just get baptized when I'm 20 or 30 or 50. And the thing is, I don't think we ever reached that point in our life. If we were waiting up until we had a full understanding of everything to do it, and that's the symbolism of baptism. When you're going under the water, it symbolizes death and this idea that you'll be put in the ground and resurrected. This covenant that you're making is a covenant that when you die you and, and you be raised back up from the ground, it is this future state, this idea, this this fulfillment, this cleanliness isn't isn't necessarily that you're being washed away free by magic water and baptism. It's that when you resurrect, you will be spotless. The Lord will cleanse you at that point down the road. But at this point on, you are accountable. You are choosing to follow the Lord and you are going to do your best to correct your decisions and own up to what you're doing rather than just putting it on your parents. And in that sense, I think eight is a, is a perfect time. I also think that also, even with that said, that, that that still maybe not also the only emphasis that we should be emphasizing I know that like uh, when I baptized Ruby last year at about this time, when I was confirming her and, you know, giving her the Holy Ghost, like I felt overwhelmingly compelled to be like, this isn't even about your self-worth or your sins or whatever. It's like the most important thing that we're doing today is giving you the Holy Ghost so that you on your own as you just try to figure out this life, we'll at least have a companion with you when we're, when we're not there, right? And that and that even focusing on even I'm I'm totally with you. Like even focusing on like the well now now you're spotless. It's just like yeah, but you're also a human being, and by the time we get home, you're probably gonna punch your brother. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean you see what I mean though? It's yes. like it's like I I I know that there there is. There just needs to be balance, obviously, between, you know, some guilt is healthy guilt. Some guilt is c- destructive guilt. You know what I mean? It's like, there's, there's sometimes, I feel like, maybe a push to go too far to the extremes of, like, man, like, every mistake you make, you should think of, like, blood pouring out of the pores of Jesus, and you should just feel, like, like inside that you're being destroyed. And you're like, man, I just, you know... I don't know, flipped off the dude next to me in the car. Like, I, I felt bad about it. And you know what I mean? It's just like, no, no, no. You haven't felt bad enough about it, right? <laughs> um, and then and then there's also sometimes the extreme the other way, which is 
we should never feel any guilt. We should never feel any shame. We should never, you know, like we're all imperfect, but it doesn't matter. Because, but like, stop, stop feeling like, stop feeling any guilt or stop feeling any shame or whatever it is. Like, just like God wouldn't want you to do that. And I'm like, well, I think that we, I think it kind of comes out somewhere in the middle of those two things, right? Like, yeah. no, you can't, you you can't tell somebody that because they made a mistake that it's over for them or that they should have these weird lingering, you know what I mean? Self-worth issues for the rest of their life and things like that. You're like, no, 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 no. You're absolutely still a child of God. Like, like people make mistakes, you know, do what you can fix it and keep moving on. And you're going to need to fix it again. And at the same time, like, yeah, but when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, like, like feeling guilt is a very healthy reminder of like, hey, you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Like, let's not. I I just don't think that we, I don't think we need to try to like move too far to either of those extremes, right? And and then with the baptism thing again with kids and stuff like that, I'm like, being, again, like when we were younger, so much of like the lessons we would get and stuff in Sunday school and all would just be like, hey, you like you got to get baptized so that all of your sins can go away. And you're like, well, to this point, I don't have any sins supposedly. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, yeah, supposedly they, they, I don't have any sins at this point. So this is this is if that's what this is for, then that was kind of not needed, right? Yeah, it was unnecessary. It was if, completely if, unnecessary. If Christ atones for anyone who dies before they're baptized. That's my that's my point. Like, supposedly if we're sinless before then, that this was that that wasn't important. And then and then you go, but then you go, okay, well then what are we doing this for, right? Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I just I, I just had in my mind. You you know how so many times you have the baptism talk and they take the dirty penny and they dunk it in the water. I just, I just I just can't help but thinking as an eight year old if I if I were back again thinking as I am now like how in the heck did that penny get that dirty between? Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, well okay. That's, what'd you do, that's kid? True too. What'd you do? No, I'm sorry. My, my no mind no. I'm with there. you though. I guess I'm just saying like I one of the things that I do feel like we've we've done a very good job culturally as I'm I'm trying to compliment us as in general, at least from what I've seen. So maybe this is just my own experience, but Mm -hmm. it has been nice to, I feel like we've started to see more and more that, that ordinance focus more on, Hey, this is, this is a great chance for you to know that if you do your, the best you can and you repent and you do, you know what I mean? Just continually just try to be better and do better and better then you're promised that you can have the Holy Ghost with you that will help you, but not only just help you make right decisions, because you're still going to blow it, but to, like, help comfort you when you're sad, to help, you know, it's like, I just feel like I'm happy that so much more focus around that ordinance has been on the positives of not like, hey, now you're clean. You're just like, come on, man. Like, (laughs) like, that's, yeah, yeah, that is, that's right. That's part of it, but, like, but how awesome is it instead to go like, hey, now at even this young of an age, you can start learning how to find truth versus false. You know, like even at eight years old, you're, you've now been given the tools to start learning how to decipher good and evil without your parents having to tell you this, right? So back to the original question. I think eight's I think eight's fine. I think eight's great. I think right? it's fantastic. I think it's, I, I'm just saying it's like that makes sense to me on more than just the idea of like, well, do they do they understand the responsibility they're taking on them at that time? No. No, they don't. <laughs> you want to know what? So do adults that are converting to the church. You know what I mean? It's like they're... Do you ever fully understand? That's my point. Or like, no. this is this is more like a, a seat at the game, right? This is the starting, the gate, the beginning that I am willing to learn. Yes, I am willing and, to start this. And... Here are the best possible tools with you. A member of the Godhead can help you, comfort you, advise you, you know what I mean, inspire you. Like, to me, that's the whole thing. I'm just like, yeah, before that, before eight, I'm sure, you know, most kids really wouldn't understand what's going on. Eight years old, I, I, have, I have conversations with my daughter and go, hey, let's, let's talk about why lying doesn't work. Mm-hmm. But not even just like, you know, and you know my thoughts on this. It's not like, well, it's because it makes Jesus sad. No, it's that's not <laughs> the conversation I have with her. It's going, hey, holy cow, that's something that we, it's, it, it's sometimes we over-exaggerate. Sometimes we do these things. It doesn't make us a bad person. But what it does do is it starts to chip away at our integrity. Like it starts to chip away. And so when your brother comes in and says, Ruby punched me, and you come out and say, no, 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 no. He punched me first. 
I'm sorry, like, Cal doesn't lie to me about things, therefore... I'm going to have to kind of, you know, side with him side on with this him one. And she's, but the thing is, is like, she's, she gets it. The whole point is then you can go, and also, now that you've been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Ghost, here's what's really great about that, is that if you're in a situation where you're thinking about lying, or if you're in a situation where whatever, you have the tools given to you, even at this young of age, to like, to have a very strong impression, and if you can learn how to listen to those impressions, you can trust your gut more than you can trust whatever you see on the news or whatever you read on social media. You know what I mean? Or whatever you're being told, whatever. Like at eight years old, you can start learning how to recognize when you're being inspired by God. And 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 then with that, with those tools, have a better life, you know, and make better decisions and and you know. And feel guilt when it is necessary and it's healthy and, and do things so that you don't have to, you know, continue feeling like, so that's, yeah, I, I think that, I think that eight years old, there's a competency there that absolutely works to have that part of the conversation. Am I, am I totally off here? Am no. I, have I gone, have I gone totally off? <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. And, and I think it also stresses to the parents the importance, like the sins are upon you if you're not educating your kid by the time they're eight. Like we can't be waiting until they're old enough to understand to start teaching them. True, These are formative years. This is where they're starting to, to you, you have to teach them how to think, to, to, to figure things out, to reason, to understand what's important, what's not. You can't wait till they're old enough to all of a sudden decide and say, okay, now let me try to explain now that you understand. Because what, what happened in all those formative years that you missed out on, that, that they needed that from you, and you let them... And you, you made a great point, too, just now when you were saying it, though, that I totally agree with, and this still comes back to the idea of receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, is that, like, I don't... I, Ruby didn't come out with a handbook. You know what I mean? She didn't come out with a user manual. I've, I'm trying to figure, me and my wife are trying to figure this out, right? Of how to do it. Because what you just said, yeah, there is an, an a humongous pressure on parents to quote unquote, quote, not screw their kids up before, you know what I mean? Before, <laughs> yes. before they know how to do it. Which is, it's, that's a little overwhelming, if I'm being totally honest with you, because I don't know all the answers. And then it still comes back to what I have found, at least personal, um, um, I don't know, personal solace. I have found resolve. I have found personal resolve in the idea that instead of tr me trying to go with my kids and go, okay, this thing's right and this thing's wrong, and in this situation that's right, and in this situation this is wrong, and here's what to do in this situation, and here's exactly what to not do in this situation, because one, they'll never remember that, two, I'm not I question my own decision making all the time anyways. Our whole focus has been Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. Learn how to trust learn how to trust those promptings that are innate. Learn how to trust learn your feelings. That's exactly right. Is don't don't be afraid to go that doesn't feel right to me. I need to resolve why that is, right? Because the thing is is that it's not the easy way out for parents but dang it, it's it's a good way out for situations where you're like, I don't know all of the situations. I don't even know what this world will look like in 20 years from now, right? So instead of me trying to go, well, and I I have now the responsibility of like, if 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 I if they blow it in this situation, it's because I didn't teach them that. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's unfair to the parents. Mm -hmm. But what is fair, I feel like, is to go, parents, did you teach your kids how to? Listen to promptings. Did you show your kids examples and talk to them about examples of when you felt promptings? It's like, oh, that covers kind of everything. And yes, in certain situations, like, yeah, you can't, you can't punch your brother, whatever that is, right? But even then, so much of it can be back to how do you feel when that happens? Are you listening to those promptings that you're getting, right? Because then, then in the future when you're not there, or a situation arises that you could have never imagined or that you might have the wrong answer to, you don't have to be held responsible for the, for the decision that they made if you did what you could to go learn how to use the, the perfect, pure truth that you have inside you.
I said, it's like going back to that on scripture. It's not meet that you be commanded in all things. It's impossible. If you're as a parent trying to prepare your kid for every single contingency and what they should do and what they can do and what they can't do, it's going to be overwhelming. And you're, you probably, you're, you're going to fail. Yes, that's, 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 I mean, it's like, it's an impossible task. It is. But if you teach your kids and who's, I, I can't remember who said this. They said, when I do good, I feel good. When I do bad, I feel bad. This is my religion. And, and it's just very simple idea. But if you can take a moment when they do something and ask them, how, how do you feel about what happened? How does that make you feel? Or, or and, and, you know, it's easy to do that and be critical at a moment when they did something that they shouldn't have and when they're angry, and, and that, that might even stoke it up and make them even more angry. Of course. But yes, maybe course. what we're missing is those moments when they surprise us, when they do something, they become a little bit less selfish, and they give something up or they do something nice, and you're like, wow, wait, 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 I just want to pause for a minute. How did that make you feel? What what is that doing? What you don't is... even have to tell me. Just recognize it. Uh-huh. Like just and maybe you don't feel some overwhelming goodness, but but at least still just start to understand. I I completely agree with you, and it's funny because I feel like that. Believe it or not, I like I tried to play that off as like, hey, the easy way to do it is just teach them how to like find the answer for themselves, and it absolves you of all things. It's funny because it's actually the harder thing to do, in my opinion. Right? Mm-hmm. It's the easy thing to do. When your kid comes up and they've just thrown a temper tantrum and threw a rock through the window, it's the easy thing to do to go, okay, now I'm going to cuff you upside the head and I'm going to ground you. And it's because doing that is wrong and and now go to your room and that's it, right? Because it takes – that's the easy thing to do because it's just there. It's in front of you, right? The harder thing to do is as a parent take seven deep breaths and go, okay – how can I let them teach themselves in this situation what the wrong and right thing in that situation would be to do? Because guess what? That takes time and that takes potentially maybe not getting the answer that you as the parent want. Maybe that, you know what I mean? It's like it comes with all of the hard possibilities, right? And and I say this because I'm blowing this all the time and in situations where it's just so easy to go, hey, that was the wrong thing. I'm having to try to learn how to go, hey, come and sit down and talk to me for a minute. Just talk to me for a minute. Do you know, do you know what I want to talk about? Yet surprisingly, they do. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yes. cool. Talk to me then. What just happened? Talk to me. About, you tell me what just happened inside of you because maybe I don't understand. Maybe I don't understand that, that that whole scene that they just put on maybe isn't about what I thought it was Maybe about. there's something as a parent you're missing That's and exactly you didn't right. realize that you were about to come through and make something X when Y was That's actually exactly the right, right solution. That's that's that Jason that is exactly what I'm trying to say. Is that is that that's why it's harder is because it also puts us potentially in conflict too. You know what I mean? It puts us in a position where we might have to also go, "Oh, okay." I saw this incorrectly. Okay, now that you've explained this to me, child, thank you for helping me understand this. I totally misunderstand where I was coming from. Now, can we both agree that the reaction to that was inappropriate? Can we at least both start there and agree that that the outcome of that wasn't right? Is there a place that that we can make a change that both you and I feel like we were heard and understood and, and neither of us are getting hurt with the outcome of this now? Life has certain consequences. I'm going to need you to mow the lawn and do some laundry because we got to pay for this window. You know what I mean? It's like there's still know. so many lessons that can be yes. caught in there. And, dude, the thing is, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's like no, you're good. I almost feel like that's how you also win people to your side too. Like that's how you gain allies instead of enemies, right? Is to is to Is to be in the trenches going, here's where I was wrong in this, even as your parent. Here's where I blew this. Can we be on the same team when it comes to this? Like, I don't want to be the person, just the authoritarian coming down on you. I'm in here with you. I'm on your same team. You know what I mean? Like, yes, I may have 40 years of experience on you, but dude, but who cares? Like, what does that even mean, though? You know what I mean? Like, who, what? From from the mouth of babes, right? Exactly. They, they, They talk about how you learn from... And they're going through different things than I went through, and they're feeling different things. And some of them are the same, but I guess I guess as I'm thinking through this, 
that's kind of what's that's making more sense. And again, and I want, and I know you're trying to jump in here, so I feel no, bad no, that I'm good. cutting Don't off here. Don't feel bad. But that's what that's why I think back to the 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 idea of baptizing kids at eight. I think it's I think it's obviously divinely inspired, and I have because of multiple reasons. But as we kind of talk through this, it comes back to like that is an age that they're still humble enough and and open enough and learning enough to, to for you to be able to say, um, here are here are some tools. Learn how to use these tools. It, if it gets too extreme, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to keep boundaries, obviously. Obviously, and and I and I need to teach you about lines and boundaries. But it's also at an age where they are smart enough to start. I mean, dude, my children know how to manipulate the crap out of me and Heather <laughs> in different ways, by the way, too. They know how to get me in a very different way than they than they get Heather. And we both kind of sometimes laugh when we watch them just like walking all over the other person, right? We're just like, whoa, how are they? How are you letting them manipulate you like that? It's like, well, they manipulate you like this. And you're like, well, that's right. I guess I'm just saying is that they are also old enough and smart enough at that age to be able to have deeper conversations and and to to really start to recognize that. So, anyways. No, yeah. I mean, if you can te- if you can teach a chicken to play a piano, just think of what your kids are so much. They figure things out. Yep. That you you got to give them more credit than you do. And I loved what you said because it it is easier said than done. But oh yeah, like I'm just I'm ta- I'm trying. This is this is more self therapy at this point. You know, what I mean, this is me trying to go. Okay, so yeah, no, I I would hope that this doesn't come across as preaching at all. I'm telling you, I am the worst at this. No, but it's but it's so rewarding, and you see the difference in in when there are punishment, and I say punishment. Punishment is kind of a bad word for this. Consequences, right? Like, hey. This is what's happened. This is where we've gone wrong, and this is what we need to do to set it right. And and when you're having that conversation, and you're not just coming in and telling them this, this, and that, but you're hearing them and hearing what they're saying and hearing their side. One, they feel validated. But two, when they understand and and you've reached this conclusion together, not because you've dictated it, but because you both see eye to eye and you say, "Yes, I see now that I have to make this right," and you say, "Okay." How about this? Does how does this feel? Or you're looking through this and you come up with these consequences. The mindset and attitude of a kid responding to consequences when they have come up with those or they understand sure. those and they agree with yes. you, they will go through and they'll get it. They might not like it, but they understand it and they'll do it. As opposed to if you say do this, and that's and not it's fair. Because and it's because you whatever. Well, can you explain it? No. If I say then this is where again I blow it. No. Go to your room. If go I wash I the dishes. Do this, go whatever. Go. You know what I mean. And again, like obviously, there are certain lines that, that have to be enforced, like you can't mm-hmm. cross. But but I but even then, like I'm learning more and more that I need to be way way more relaxed on even where some of those lines are. Right? Like like uh, you know, like the in my mind, uncrossable lines from four years ago, five years ago have changed even now because I'm like, oh. See, I'm glad that I learned in the past five years where I was blowing that. I need to be way more relaxed here and maybe a little tighter over here, you know. And, and I'll have to say, you know, I've got a teenager now, Hannah, love her to death. And and some of my most rewarding experiences as a father from this point all the way have been those conversations with her when when – we're talking it out and and I'm hearing her perspective or what she's saying and she's hearing mine. And then I'm, I'm not telling her this is what it needs to be, or this is how we need to do it. I'd say, okay, this, this is what the prophets say. Why do you think that? Or why is this important? Or what do you think? Or, or how do you think we should handle this? Or what do you think we should be doing it? And, and as I hear what her thoughts are, and as I hear her reason through it, and as I hear her getting to this point and she starts to understand me and understand, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't always understand. I don't always know. And and I will be strict when I need to be strict, but I try to be flexible and understand her. I, I, coming together and seeing eye to eye with her and having those conversations, not that it happens all the time, but when it has, my my, my most favorite experience as a father. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's good. It's it's a I it's I'm not I don't know if I'm necessarily looking forward to the teenage years because my amazing <laughs> nine year old already flashes a lot of the at least some of my my poor parents, but my, my teenage, my teenage drama. So they, they, they she, come with their whole different clone, set of challenges. Man. She's, she's a little clone of me and I'm just going, Oh man, my wife is really going to be in for it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Every every stage, man. I'm I'm super glad I'm not getting up in the middle of the night anymore. Oh yeah, that's dope. And and not having to change diapers or or the you know I mean there's horror stories, no, right? No, and, oh no, we could do we could do a whole podcast on just that. Nobody would want to hear. Nobody it, wants but, to yeah. hear it, but we've all been there. And every stage has its downsides and its difficulties, and every stage has its rewards. And every stage has. I mean, every stage is one that you look back through photos of, and because our. And this is why this is my last thought on even why eight years old I think is a perfect date is because I don't really remember a lot of bad things before eight years old, right? Like I don't remember I don't remember any like times my parents totally blew it with with um, disciplining me other than the one time that my dad threw away my curious George monkey doll <laughs> because I thought it would be a good idea to go and take him out into the ditch that we had up in Logan in the front and he came in like uh, the doll came in soaking wet my dad was like you ruined this thing man you got to go throw it away and I was devastated <laughs> but other than that it's I, I'm not throwing my dad under the bus here we laugh about this all the time now I'm just I'm just throwing <laughs> yeah, that I'm just you. throwing that out there it's it, it's it actually is kind of a funny joke and he always is just like well I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I ruined your life because of the curious <laughs> Georgetown. I'm always just like, no, it's funny. But the thing is, like, I do actually think, though, that there is something that is kind of amazing about the human mind where we, before the age of eight, don't – our memory isn't super great. You know what I mean? It's right. not. It's not the most amazing. And the things that we do remember, for the most part, I feel like are happiness and, and things that hopefully every kid – gets to experience in, in whatever. And at eight, you kind of start remembering stuff. You do. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's that's the other... For better, for worse. For better, for worse, anyways. <laughs> that's that's funny. No, thanks, Nate. And we always look back on those ages as parents and for, also forget all of the, uh, all of the uh, diaper explosions and the waking up in the middle of the night and you just look back at those pictures and you cry and you're like, I can't believe how fast they grow up and it's sincere and scary and it's all those things too you'd, so. you'd almost take one more day at the I playground know, with man. that explosion all over the slide I, dude and nothing oh in the you totally bag. would well it is it's funny because <laughs> Just to have those i know kids again. i do know why the youngest get spoiled though right i know why the oldest are, are always like the toughest and i know why the youngest are always the most spoiled it takes you that long to figure it out well and right? then and then by the time you do you really start genuinely cherishing every single day of those different stages right like, cause you're going, cause then now you've had like, now you've seen how fast they grow up and the oldest is always starting the new stage that you're just like, what a headache this is going to be. The middle is unfortunately forgotten about. And then the, you know what I mean? Or, or in that weird stage between the two, I'm sorry, middle children, but it's a real thing. And the youngest <laughs> is always like, I just need to appreciate every single day that you still don't know how to yell back at me you know? <laughs> <laughs> or crawl so that you can get into stuff you know what i mean it's like it's just funny because you just you i feel like somehow have now gone like yeah you really actually should cherish every single day that you have because man it moves and it almost makes you sad i mean how many totally. times have you wished you could hit pause and just oh. keep your family exactly the way it was i mean i i feel like that all the time and and at the same time, I'm always glad you can't because then when Ex all of them yep. move into the next stage, you go, holy cow, there's so much amazing I'm glad I didn't miss out on this. And, yep, there's so much fulfillment in that too. So That's the meaning of life, I suppose. It's I guess. <laughs> I also have FOMO though. I get weird. I'm like, I hate the fact that I'm going to die Oh yeah. In, in like, I don't know, 30 years, hopefully not sooner, 30, 40 years. But my kids, I'm glad for them, but I also kind of am like, yeah, why do they get to have flying cars and I... I don't. You know, like, there's a weird FOMO about that, too, so. It's a bittersweet deal. Hopefully Jesus just comes. We, I think we all hope that. I know, we all hope that, because I don't want to miss out on anything, man. That's what I'm hoping for. I want Jesus to come. I want to hopefully make at least the first round of cuts so that I can hang out for a little bit longer and not have to feel FOMO on the other side. But well, just but think about this as, as as we've talked about how you graduate from one stage to the other, or you know, if you could hit pause, how much you would miss on knowing how wonderful it it's is true. down the road. It's a good point. What are we missing out on on the other side? I know it's a good point. What 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 glorious things are we going to be over there next way saying? You know, yeah, it was good, but I'm so glad I'm here now. It's true. So that's that. As always, good perspective, man. Um, what are we talking about next week? <laughs> next week, we're diving into Doctrine and Covenants 71 through 75. And uh, it says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Oh. Yeah, invincible. Bulletproof? Bulletproof. 
Titanium. Can't wait. Titanium, <laughs> like the Sia and David Guetta song that got played on the radio in 2014 every single day, all day. That, that's that's where I was. <laughs> Except for I was thinking the Madeline Page version. Wow. Because she, I did she do a cover of that song? She did. She did awesome on uh, The Voice, was it? I, you're asking the wrong dude. dude I'm you're sorry. the music guy. Come on. I know you would think that the music guy would have a better grip on that type of stuff, but I mean, she's she's cool, man. I I, li- I like her stuff, so I'm not. I'm she's not. done a few concerts at the school I taught at, and she she killed it every time. She's good. No, she's really good. She's really good. And that song is pretty good, man. I'm Titanium. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? I, more or less. Dude, maybe I need to go sing in the choir so that God can give me the Use talent Use your talents, back, Nate. Maybe God needs to give me my talent back because I'm scared that listening back onto that, it's not going to be as uh, as, as capitalized on as, as I think it probably should have been. Anyways, all right. Well, that's that. Until next week. See ya.